Welcome to Food and Loathing, or at least this year-end holiday recap of what Food and Loathing was in 2022. I'm your host, Al Mancini. My usual co-hosts are off enjoying the holidays, and I can't wait to hear um, from Samantha Gemini Stevens and find out where she ended up spending her holiday after what I see on social media has been a rather crazy attempt to navigate the many flight cancellations and reroutes. But I'm sure she's finding some delicious food, so I'm sending her some love, hoping she makes her way back with some great stories from maybe not the city she wanted to go to, but from someplace cool she ended up. Anyway, Rich Johnson is not with me while I record this, but he is the man who will be cobbling together the entire show in post-production. So anything that sounds good is all him. Anything that sounds iffy is probably all my fault. Looking back on 2022, wow, what amazing guests we had, um, what cool conversations we had, um, both local and national personalities, some doing short updates on their latest projects, others sitting down with us to take deep dives into their stories, their plans, their culinary philosophies, and of course, the food that they're serving here in Las Vegas. Those are actually the most fun for me was those deep dives where we could just sit back and relax and bullshit and talk. Um, Some of them ran rather long. So I've gone back to a few of my favorite episodes and pulled some experts that were a lot of fun for me to record and to listen to again as we reviewed for the end of the year. So let's kick it off with one of the OGs of food television, the guy who was doing it before just about any of today's celebrity chefs. I can only be speaking of Martin Yan, who has a new restaurant coming to the newly rebranded Horseshoe Casino on the Strip. It's been billed as his first Las Vegas restaurant, which it is technically, But as Yan explained to me, he has actually consulted in Las Vegas in the past many, many years ago at Caesars Palace. And in this clip from our interview, he spoke about that experience decades ago and how Las Vegas and the food world have changed in the years since. Also, we got into a bit of what he plans to offer at his new place. Years and years ago, actually, uh, I was a chef consultant for Caesars Palace. They have a restaurant named Empress Court. Yes. That was one of the most upscale restaurants at that time. Yeah, I remember Empress Court. So you consulted yeah. on that? Yeah, yeah. I, I worked with the executive chef and, and, the, and the F&B team, and I actually took some of them to Asia to check out several restaurants before we do that, because a, the, the placemat is a piece of J. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and, and the, the, but the chopstick rest is a piece of J. And some of the noodle bowl is also the, the the bowl the bowl the rice will put in a, a J bowl. Wow, that's how that's pretty how high class. Yeah. Very very upscale. Yeah. So I guess then I would like to start by asking you how Las Vegas has changed in those years since the Empress Court days, and how planning a restaurant for Vegas in 2022—that's what we're in, right? 2022—is yeah. different than then because the market has clearly changed. People have gotten much more educated, much more in tune with food. I would think. Definitely, um, the change is so drastic. I remember when we first um, started working with Caesar's um, Palace. Those days, the focus is on Asian VIP mm-hmm. uh, clientele. They would fly them in from Asia, charter plane to come in and do it. And the focus is really much on really high roller. And it's also on the strip. There's not too many high end. Restaurant, uh, restaurant or high-end casino in the old, old, old days, right? Yeah. So basically, now, in the last 
15, 20 years, Las Vegas is turning into the entertainment capital, not just the gaming, the gambling or the gaming capital, but the entertainment capital of the world. And the people used to come here from Asia. They have casino in Asia too. So they don't necessarily have to come over here as much, but a lot of them still come because for entertainment. So, and also a lot of the people from different parts of the, the U.S. are also coming to Las Vegas because you got a show, you got a sport, you got the, 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 the landscape, you got a Hoover Dam, you got a lot of wonderful tourist destination. So, I think nowadays Las Vegas is definitely changed and the, 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 the people are more educated because of the food network, because of the travel, because of the internet. You can find a lot of things that you never seen. You never know what's happening before, and people are enjoying to really appreciate good food. What is regional Asian food? What is Thai food? What is ramen? You remember, forty years ago, hardly see any sushi bar. Mm -hmm. There's very, very few ramen noodle restaurant. Very few Thai restaurant. Very few Vietnamese noodle restaurant. Uh, uh, beef noodle restaurant. Now they're popping up all over. So when it comes to Las Vegas, Las Vegas should have all of these elements mm -hmm. to, to entertain all of these people. And then you come here, you have the best Thai, rest, uh, Thai food. You have the best Vietnamese food. You have the best sushi, the best ramen. Look at Nobu is here. Right. Anthony Bourdain, I mean, uh, 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 Gordon Ramsay is here. And everybody's here. All the wonderful people is here. And uh, um, uh, uh, David Chang is here. Um, uh, the, 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 the lot of celebrity, Michael Mina, mm -hmm. um, and all the a lot of the Food Network celebrity chef are here. Right. So I'm the slow comer. I'm the newcomer. <laughs> but they wouldn't be here if it were not for people like you and what you accomplished through food television in the very early days. So I mean, you are in many ways very responsible for the fact that there's a market for good food in Las Vegas and everywhere in America, to definitely, be completely honest. Definitely. You know, old days, it's very hard for people to travel. Nowadays, people travel all over the world. And people come over here, and there are 44, close to 45 million tourists. In Las Vegas, only 4 million people living here. <laughs> yeah. So basically, this is truly a mecca, an entertainment mecca. And, 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 and not just the gaming. So people come over here, like my wife would come, sometimes come over here for spa, for, to see the show. And then also eat in a couple of restaurants. And, and she's not much a gambler, but she come here because of the show, the entertainment element. And so, so I come over here and I, if you watch the Yankee Cook Show, which started in 1978, Wow. Well, before, way before the <laughs> Food Network, before. When we started, it was only Julie Child, French <laughs> chef, and Graham Carroll, Galloping Gourmet, and Yang Ken Cook. Wow. Fifteen years later, slowly you got Jacques Pepin and a lot of people coming. And I'm still around. Yeah. You know, after 43 years, I'm still around because just like your business in, in, in the media business, just like sport, we love what we do. When we love what you do, you're, you're not really working. I'm, I don't feel like I'm working. Right. You know, when I work in a restaurant and eat in the kitchen or the dining room and say hello, they are my friends. Not just fans, they are my friends. They, they supported me. 
You know, the, 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 the Yankee Cook Show was broadcast in about 60 countries around the world at one point, wow. reaching about 2 billion people. Because we were in Middle East, we were in England, we, we were in uh, uh, all of Asia and India and China. Just these two countries alone is 2 billion, yeah. more than 2 billion. Wow. So I feel like, you know, I'm just go com complete circle. Now, finally, I decide, or maybe in my old age, I want to stop a restaurant um, and, and, and spend more time here. Because people know you from a cooking show, by cooking for them in a restaurant, I'm guessing you take them a little beyond what you do when you're teaching them for the home cooks. Are you able to kind of up your game yeah. in a restaurant that you wouldn't be able to do on TV? Yeah, definitely. Uh, give me an example. On TV, you, you see it one-dimensional. It's not truly realistic in a sense. They cannot taste my food. Mm -hmm. So my, my slogan is always, you see, taste, and discover. Because you're sitting down, I'm gonna do some noodle in front of you, I'm gonna do the wok cooking in front of you, I'm gonna make the dumpling in front of you, and in five minutes, 10 minutes, we serve you the food that we just prepare. Mm -hmm. And then, and then uh, just like you go to a, a sushi bar, the chef do it in front of you. That's why our restaurant, we're gonna have a wonderful open kitchen, noodle bar, and a wok station. So when we're doing things, people can feel the action, feel the excitement, feel the energy. That's why we call it the energy, right? So we, we, we want to do something just like I do television. I want people to be entertained. Entertained with the food, but not just the surface and the food, but entertained with the thing that we deliver, the, the spirit we deliver, the energy we deliver. I was also lucky enough to speak with Buddy Velastro a few times over the past year. One of my favorite conversations took place shortly after his birthday when we discussed the appeal of culinary guilty pleasures and the ways in which nostalgia is often far more important to someone's experience than authenticity or some other snob factors that go along with fine dining. It all began with the discussion of the cake his wife made him for his birthday this year. You kind of set the internet on fire with a cake photo. Photo. And of all of the cake photos that we have seen from you, this was maybe the most unlikely one, but I think it was very heartwarming. So tell us about the birthday cake that you received this year. Well, every year uh, since I've been married, my wife always wants to make a cake for me for my birthday. And over the years, she's gotten progressively better at it, you know, and she makes a, a box mix cake mix, you know, this regular uh, Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker. And she upped it by doing a four-tier, right? She learned to get some supplies from the bakery, like the pegs and stuff, so the cake wouldn't collapse. But the way she decorated it was, and it was kind of weird. She asked me, like, four days before my birthday, she's like, what did you eat as a kid? Like, what junk food? And I remember going to this candy store, and uh, like, before school, and it, w it was called the candy store. And, um, you know, I would get... They would have, you know, wise potato chips and they would have like um, yo-yos and ho-hos and, and ring-dings and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a throwback to the junk food that I used to get. I used to get the quarter drinks too. I don't know if everybody remembers like those little grenade things. They were like different flavors, but it was the quarter drink and it was a quarter. Um, you didn't find any of those, but it was just uh, awesome to see that. Wow. You know what I like about it? I mean, first of all, it's just great that your wife makes a cake for you. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's very nice. It shows what a family guy you are. It also illustrates something that as a food writer, I've noticed that no matter how big a snob somebody is, 
they all have their own guilty pleasures that they think are okay, but then they look down on other people's guilty pleasures, right? That seems to be a foodie world. And I like seeing you talk about your wife using a cake mix and, and decorating it with junk food from your childhood because food is really all, all about memories, isn't it? 100%, you know, um, and, and look, I'm the type of person that I eat, I'll try anything, whether it might seem more commercial or it might seem more this or more that. Listen, if you grow up eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos, when you eat one, there's a little bit of nostalgia there, right? You know, um, I don't ever frown upon anybody who eat whatever you like. If you like to get, you know, Domino's pizza, that's your thing, that's good. You know what I'm trying to say? Like everything, or Papa John's, or, or you come to Pizza Cake. For me, it's, it's as long as you're happy with the food, it's what you think is right. And that's the thing, too. People don't understand what palates. Palates are subjective. If you always had your pizza, right, and I'm using pizza because uh, pizza is probably one of my favorite foods. And in traveling the country, I always tried to eat pizza. It was always like the safe bet because even bad pizza is not that bad, right? You could, right. You could scoff down <laughs> a, a bad slice of pizza, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So um, when you go to different parts of the country – they don't cook the pizza as much. It's more, it's softer. It's a little more floppy. Like New York, the, the crust has got to be, you know, crispy. When you take a bite, it's got to have that crunch. It's all about what you're used to. If yeah. this was the way your mom made spaghetti, that's the way you think spaghetti should be made. If this is the way the local pizzeria in your neighborhood made it, you think it's the best. It's what you grew up with. Yeah, and, you know, I always tell people, I, I encourage people to try what is declared the best or the, the finest or the proper one. I think we should all try it. We should all have that as a base of experience. But then, again, there is no adjusting for palates. There's no adjusting for taste. That's got to be really challenging when you do Italian-American cuisine, which is the most, in my personal opinion, just one guy's opinion, but I, I have... I believe it has the most memories attached to it. People that come from big Italian families, and I guess every nationality has their own. So maybe I just move within, you know, Italian-American circles more, right? Exactly. But everybody talks about their grandmother's sauce. Everybody talks about their grandmother's meatballs. I mean, this is just something that goes, you know, worldwide, I feel, or at least nationwide in America. So how tough is it for you when somebody, you know, to... to to know that you are stepping in for people's grandmothers when you're making this stuff? Well, listen, I think it's a double-edged sword, too. And, 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 I, and I don't think it's only me. I think it's every single celebrity chef or, or, or chef gets the same critique. You know, people come in here and they expect a certain expectation of what they think they're going to taste, right? And whether their grandmother's meatballs were better or worse, <laughs> it, it's all interpretive, right? You know, where some people, um, for me, I do things the way that I feel like take meatballs, Right? I don't like it. For me, a meatball has to have a little bit of softness to it. And why? Because authentic meatballs to me was my grandmother would cut the meatballs with bread because they didn't have money for meat. Like it, the, the real base of Italian cooking is peasant food. Yeah. So my grandmother had, you know, eight kids. She didn't have money. She made pasta all the time. When she would make meatballs, she would, you know, cut it with bread. And it was actually a little more tender to the fork, right? She used to use Wonder Bread and she used to soak it in milk and squeeze it out. And man, you're bringing in. back memories yeah, here. Like, 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 yeah, but, but that's the truth of it. So that's what I want 
people to taste. I want people to understand that's the way I ate my meatballs. I loved them. I remember on a uh, Sunday morning watching my mom make them. And then she would look me in the eye as she was frying them. She would smash one down and just fry the whole thing. And then, she, you know, just a little bit of salt. And I would pop it down, you know, before the meal. And it's those memories that you, when people come to Buddy Bees, that's what I want them to, to, to take out. I want them to remember the smell of that Sunday morning of the garlic and the meatballs frying up and really feel um, at home. And I think you, I think you achieve that very much so. But there's always going to be that person that comes in. It's like, oh, well, this isn't what my grandmother's meatballs tasted like, right? Listen, you're never going to make everybody happy. And and again, you know, look, if 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 people come in here and they enjoy the meal, look, grandma's a high standard to beat, <laughs> yeah. right? And the way I love my grandmother, everybody feels connected with their own families and their own like where you were located right if you grew up in boston you think that this is the best or if you grew up in new york you think this is the best or california or you know so it's not only family but it's geographically right of what you think things should certainly be I dug a little deeper into the same concept of culinary expectations and biases when I sat down with Michael Simon to discuss the return of Mabel's Barbecue to the Palms. In this cut, we start off discussing how people's opinions of barbecue is usually dependent on geography, and then we move on to one of the funniest stories about customer feedback that I have ever heard. We also hear a bit about what has changed at Mabel's since their pre-pandemic days. I always think that that barbecue should feel uh, very personal to where it is. And so when we opened Cleveland Mabel's, um, it was important to me that, that that barbecue joint in Cleveland, Ohio represented the city of Cleveland. And when we first opened in Vegas, we're like, well, we'll just do that here. And then as I was here, I was like, you know what? Vegas is such a, like a incredible melting pot of cultures and flavors and all those things. So we do have the Cleveland kind of classics um, on the menu, but we're also having a lot of fun with, you know, like maybe doing um, like a sweet and sticky style rib with some Asian influences or, you know, like doing some um, homemade tortilla tacos like once a week and, and things like that. So I do want to um, just like Cleveland Mabel's was an ode to Cleveland. I want to sure, make sure that Vegas Mabel's is an ode to Vegas. Um, Cause I think that's what barbecue is. Barbecue is really like a, uh, it's a very, it's, it's the most Americana way style of cooking. Um, and I think when it is at its best, it represents the region that it's in. And I think that, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you talk, and we've discussed this in the past about Vegas being a melting pot yeah. as a result pizza for example we have the best of every style here right um and barbecue we have some great versions of various regional styles represented when barbecue is not nearly where pizza is in las vegas right. and i thought mabel's coming was going to be a big boost to that so hopefully you will continue that boost but 100 uh, we've come a long way so for those who come in People come to Vegas from everywhere on the planet. If they're expecting the problem you get with barbecue, a lot of times is somebody goes, "Well, that's not barbecue because that's not where I how I ate it at home." Hundred percent. Right? Like, you get someone like, and this is the thing about barbecue in general, and and you know, I, I've learned this as I can in my travels, and you continue your travels, and, and you see more and more of it. Like I'm working on a show on Food Network right now that's going to come out this summer called Barbecue USA, and it's it's like a little bit of a documentary, and we go to different 
big regions of barbecue in the country where there's barbecue contests and cook with the pit masters and stuff like that. It's really fun, but it's the the nature of the beast is that like if you're in Texas, they have a very strong opinion on what barbecue is. It is 100% different than what barbecue is in Kansas City, which is 100% different which barbecue is in the Carolinas. Now, I mean, they're all cooking with live fire. Like, one thing that the barbecue belts have in common is they, they, you know, barbecue is a method, not a sauce. So they, their methods are all tried and true barbecue. They're cooking with live fire, typically relatively low and slow, um, and different regions really feature more, like, uh, Texas is brisket, you know, Kansas City, I would say is ribs, the Carolinas are whole hogs, you know, you get into Kentucky, it's mutton, um, you know, it just depends on where you are and, and what they feature. But these different regions also have literally different trees. Oh, yes. So yeah, different wood. So, the, you know, Texas is post oak and, you know, maybe a little bit of hickory and or pecan. And so it, char- it changes throughout the, the areas. So like my feeling always is, is, um, you know, we're going to cook in the true tradition of barbecue. We'll have a little bit of fun with sauces along the way, but there's always going to be people. And, um, you know, when we opened up, like, you know, people would come in and they, they'd be like, this, this isn't, this isn't pulled pork. You know, I'm like, Oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from, you know, North Carolina. I'm like, well, it, you know, there are different versions of pulled pork. And they're like, no, no, there's <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> and, and, and that is honestly the hardest thing. I mean, I have plenty of problems with, as does everybody, with the Yelps of the world and things like that. But And they also do good things. Oh, 100%. Way. But the hardest problem with a cuisine like barbecue, when you read somebody's review of it and out somebody who's not a professional writer who doesn't understand, or at least who's not a foodie, I right. should say, they will just go, this is bad because yeah. it's not the style that they're used to. And oh. that, that's got to be frustrating as hell. It is, but you, you know, you, like everything else, you kind of learn how to work your way through it. I mean, we had a, well, we were open for about two months when we first opened and a brisket went out to a table this is the opposite of someone that knows anything about barbecue, but a brisket goes out to the table, brisket comes back, and he said it was burnt. So we just sent out another piece, he sent it back. I went out to the dining room, I said, sir, is is everything okay? He's like, there is this black stuff (laughs) all over the outside of my brisket. I said, oh, that's the bark, you know, we, we cook it low and slow, and, you know, like a proper brisket should have a beautiful bark on the outside, and there's some different sauces that you could put on it. And he's like, it's burnt. I'm like, well, it's, it's not burnt. He goes, I had to cut all this off. Oh, I man. only want to pay for this part of it. Oh. And I'm like, let me just pick up your check and, you know, you go on your way. And he goes, before you go, <laughs> let me explain to you how you make a perfect barbecue brisket. <laughs> okay, here we go. You know, and he goes, you get the brisket. You put it in a crock pot for about oh my God. six to eight hours. And then when it's done, he goes, if you ever heard of this sauce called Baby Ray's, it's like, that's barbecue sauce. You pull it out of the crock pot, and right when it comes out, 
you cover it in the sauce and you put it back in the crock pot for another hour. That's how you make a brisket. Jeez. I said, sir, I will take that into account. And, <laughs> you know, but we will never make that sour brisket here. I, there's nothing I could do to make you happy. At Don't you wish you had like a camera crew following you around oh, yeah. for that interaction? Yeah. Because that would be the greatest bit of television well, ever to yeah. watch the, that the, guy. Explain. The good part would be grabbing him by the collar and taking him back to the ovens and say, see that 16 fucking hours. Yeah, it doesn't you know? work though. Well, it's like, <laughs> I mean, like we also, it'll happen. Not, not as, because there's more barbecue shows on, so I feel people are learning more. But like once a week, ribs will come back and they'll be like, these aren't cooked. I'm like, Oh, they've been cooked for like six yes. hours. They're like, they're pink. Yeah. I'm like, that's the smoke ring. They're like, no, it's raw. I'm like, no, it's not raw. And oh, like man. the same thing happens with chicken. You know, like they see the pink and they're like, oh my God, it's oh, not cooked. I'm God. like, I'm it's cooked for so long. You can't even <laughs> fathom. Yeah. Like, you know. Chicken particularly, like a lot of people, I have been with people who oh, know food freak. that are like, this is pink. Is this okay to eat? And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's, it's okay fine. to eat. Don't worry about it. Well, the other thing with chicken is if chicken's fresh, there's always going to be, like, people see the red on the bone. They're like, it's red on the bone. It's because it's never been frozen. If it's frozen, the blood turns black, and then it's not as good, but it's not yeah, red on the bone. Right, so. right. Um, oh, man, that's – I just love that story. That's fantastic. You just blew this, my mind. I forget what else we were going to talk this about. This is that. why I don't have hair. Like, this is why my father has a full head of curly hair at 80 years old, and I am bald. It is, it is because of – uh, crock pot brisket with sweet baby rays. <laughs> oh man! So uh, let's talk about the the space. I walked through it briefly. The patio, they're getting it all ready. Mm -hmm. um, the interior. Right now, we're sitting in Sarah's. I'm going to talk about that right after this question. But for the main main restaurant, any renovations or was yeah, it looking? We've, no, we've made a couple changes, and we're gonna. There's a couple more that we're gonna make shortly after we open. Um, you know, one of the things that that we found here as we were open was it's, it's a big restaurant you know it's, it's a good sized restaurant we wanted to create um some like pockets of environment a little bit so you know we become i i feel the first time around we became a place where people really enjoyed walk watching sports like our ufc nights were kind of legendary football sundays were really fantastic um uh nights hockey games were great you know so we, we put up tables in the front part of the restaurant, like the bar in the front part, and we're going to do a wall of TVs on not the bar side, the other side. So people could really kind of dig in and watch sports and have, you know, we have, what, I don't know the exact count, but like 30 beers on tap and an insane whiskey program, you know, so. I was just about to ask about the whiskey. Yeah. Because so, you had a great whiskey. Great, program. and that, that will be, I drink too much whiskey. Not <laughs> Every restaurant I own has a great whiskey program. Yeah. <laughs> it's 100% selfish. <laughs> so, but the uh so people could really come in and like it could be a place that they could just sit have beers maybe get some smoke wings barbecue watch sports and fun and then the back part of the dining room you want if you want to come in and dine a little bit more sit with family uh, you know it'll be a little bit more appropriate and we're eventually going to um get some garage doors on the back of the building that then open up to uh, the patio, so it will feel very cohesive into one kind of big room like that. And live those, music out on the patio? Yeah, we're gonna do live music outside and we're gonna do live music in the front of the restaurant. Um, so those things will all kind of happen over a little bit of a stint here in time, but it'll be fun because it'll be new things that people could come in um, and experience. So uh, it's, it's we're really excited about it. Um, you know, it's we, we, we were, I feel very successful the first time around, but we learned a little and we we're, you know, because of the 
two years of downtime, we were able to really kind of be reflective and say, if we could change a couple things for the Vegas Mabels, what will we change? You know, we kind of made a dream list when we met with everybody and they're like, we love these ideas. And so let's, let's get kind of a punch list and, and we'll keep introducing some new stuff as we go. And while we're on the topic of the Palms, I have made no secret of the fact that the return of Vetri Kuchina to the top of the Palms was the most exciting culinary news of the year for me, personally, at least. So I was thrilled when Rick Moonen, Rich Johnson, and I got the chance to sit down with Chef Mark Vetri and recap a bit of what brought him to this place and to this restaurant in Las Vegas and what he offers at that amazing restaurant. So I actually had a lot of restaurants. I had like uh, seven or eight restaurants, and then I actually sold them, mm-hmm. you know, to the 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 the, uh, the the Urban Outfitters guys. And then, then I actually left them. So I was kind of left with one restaurant, Vetri. And then this thing was offered. So I had, you know, so I was like, oh, cool. I'll do Vetri East Coast, Vetri West Coast, mm-hmm. and then so that's where where you know where I where I actually lived for like I mean a year and a half. And and then it all sort of like went away, and I was like, God, I just loved that, and and you know, like I stuck my heart and my soul into this place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like the, you know the 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 the, the, the original Vetri, um, you know, it was, it was it was I mean, it was just everything, you know. So when we lost it, I was like, shit, this is this is awful. And then I w- and then we would kind of like, you know, we would you know we would like need things for the other for, 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 um you know actually for the other restaurants we would so we'd kind of stop up here and then i'd just look at it and it was empty and we'd like you know okay we need you know some of this we need some water glass we need some chairs we need this and and you know we would just walk around and look at look at the look at the fucking skyline and just be yeah. like god damn is this gonna <laughs> happen again so i mean this is really meaningful to us you know, to be able to like reopen it and just kind of uh, re- restart, you know, what what we actually started up here. For those who aren't familiar with you, um, and they should be, um, you were, I mean, there was a time when I would go back to the Philadelphia area where I was raised and, you know, people knew that I was <coughs> writing about food and that I ate at some f- very nice restaurants. And my cousins, my aunts and uncles would always want to tell me about the Mark Vetri restaurant that they had eaten at, right? It was like, oh, man, we went to a Vetri restaurant, you know, oh, a month and a nice. half ago, and it was a great that's thing. That's always that, nice to hear. It was that like was the nice. bragging rights in Philly. I mean, you owned that town. You owned that scene well, for a while. It, I, I don't feel know if like. I owned it, but, uh, you know, listen, we've been at it, you know, for a while. We opened in uh, ni- 1998. Next next year is my 20. 20- uh, is you know my my, my my actual 25th anniversary yeah and, uh, that's a lot of fucking years sure is. <laughs> that's like and is that 25 of the flagship the flagship yeah, yeah 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 which yeah so i opened that and you know i when i interviewed you the first time i did a lot of research on you a lot of background and i i had learned that um you're the location of that flagship is actually an historic loss uh, excuse me philadelphia yeah, it was lebec finn yeah so yeah so from 19 19- 69 to 1983 it was uh lebec mm-hmm. and but then it was you know some other things it was the two quails it was ciboulette and then it was uh i forgot ciboulette chanterelle by 
Philippe Chin. Philippe Chin. And that's who I bought it from. Philippe Chin. Chin Chin. Who you know Philippe Chin. I know you know Philippe Chin. Because I think we hung out with him one night. I think you, me, and him. A long time ago. We won't go into that. I need a whole other podcast. That's a different podcast. Very X-rated. But I cooked in Chanterelle one time. I was a guest chef with Philippe Chin at his restaurant. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it is a gorgeous jewel box of a restaurant. Now, when I was growing up, you know, through the 80s, I guess, you know, my parents, that Lebec Finn was just. Well, Lebec. It, it is, was like, you know, yeah. when you watch a sitcom and they talk about going to the one fancy restaurant yep, in town, yep, it's yep. always like Les Snob or something like that. And, yeah. But Lebec Finn was like the place. It was, it the, was the. It, yeah. I mean, you know, he actually, you know, he actually, you know, was the, the innovator, man. I mean, he. He was the papa. He was the original gangster for sure. He kind of started everything, yeah. But as as it stands today as Vetri, it is a gorgeous restaurant, and it's basically what a three story townhouse. Three story townhouse, yeah. And yeah. so people are seated on different floors. First of the and restaurant. second now, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. I keep telling my parents that next time I'm down in Philly, when they're down in Philly, I'm taking them there. So awesome, awesome. Um, oh my I'll god, give you we plenty would love of notice, to have you. And then let's talk just a bit about the history of you coming here and also about the type of cuisine that Vetri Cucina serves. Because okay. I, it's always difficult me, for me to describe, and I'm a guy who gets paid to describe restaurants. Sure. It's, it's <laughs> tough um, because it's simultaneously elevated and rustic, mm -hmm. which is something that you don't find all that often. Um, it, it seems to have such a, a love of... of the, the kitchen of poverty, you know, the cucina povera, mm -hmm. as uh, Mario Batali once described sure. Italian food, but yet also raised to such such a, a exquisite level. It is northern Italian cuisine. Am I, correct? I mean, I think so. I think it's more northern. You know, I mean, I, that that's actually where I, you know, I uh, um, so obviously um, obviously so I lived in Italy, and it was in the the, the northern area mostly. Um, you know, so that's where I sort of really sort of learned everything. Um, I was there for about two years all in. And, um, you know, so that's kind of like uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the actual foundation of it. But I think now, you know, we, we go all over the place, you know. I don't think we're sort of limited by north or south or east or west or like Spain or France or Italy, you know. Yeah, I just kind of think about it as, you know, uh, the, this, the sensibility from Italy, you know, which is more or less use what's around you, you know. You know, I think, you know, when I opened back in 1998, you know, you got everything from Italy. You got, you know, this from Italy, you got the sausage from Italy, you got that, you know. And everyone was like, oh, my God, that's from Italy. You know, that's so cool. <laughs> but now it's like they want you to make everything, you know, and I want to make everything. So we like mill our, mill our own flour and we're like making our own things. And, um, you know, we're like lock and stock with uh, with the, 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 lo the, the local farmers. You know, we have a ton of farmers around us. Um, you know, so it's basically just utilizing, I think, what's around you and then just, you know, highlighting really what, what you're able to, like, you know, 
locate. You know, I, I s sort of have this, 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 uh, this, this, you know, sort of non, uh, non written, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of law, right? You know, so when line cooks are like, you know, the, the guys are like, hey, chef, I like, um, we're, we're actually, we're, we're, ac we're, you know, we're actually sort of, sort of working on this thing. It's uh, this, 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 this raw fish with this thing and this thing on it, and this is logo, you know. So I look at it and I eat it, and you know, and uh, my, <laughs> my, my look is this. I always, I always, I, it like if, like, 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 like if I actually love it, I'm like, oh man, this is good. Maybe it needs this, maybe this. But if I think it has like too many things on it, uh, you know, so, so I'm always like this. I go. Mm. You know, <laughs> three. Up three fingers. Yeah, <laughs> three fingers here. Like, what does this mean, chef? I'm like, <laughs> here's one flavor. You know, here's like something to enhance that flavor, and here's another thing maybe to help it out. But you're here, here, and here. You're in like six things. Like you got to get rid of this, this, and this, and then it's a really good dish. But like you know, sometimes this is good. Sometimes this is really good. But this is starting to get a little bit rough. You know, so. It's using what's in your area. It's really highlighting it. And, you know, because, you know, we didn't, like, make the vegetables. We didn't make the meat, you know. That's, you know, from the earth, you know. Yeah. So, you know, right. we're, just, we're just basically here to make that stuff more awesome. Um, I remember, and actually my wife, who's, who loves your restaurant just as much as I do, um, she commented the first time we dined here that, you know, you, if you look at the menu, it can be intimidating sometimes. You don't necessarily see dishes that, that jump to mind, like, mm -hmm. oh, I know that dish. I've had yeah. it a thousand times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love it. Um, but yet most of the dishes most people are going to love right and that that's strange when it can be intimidated intimidating to read it on a menu but yet uh, very comforting and homey when you actually eat it and not yeah. you know highfalutin and 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 frightening when you yeah. when you dine there and i think you know having a great staff that's able to walk you through the menu is really important which you've always had here sure um but could, w the dishes, I mean, am I correct in that these are not dishes that you see on menus in other Italian restaurants, generally speaking, at least not here in Las Vegas? I mean, some are, I think. Some of the, you know, we have obviously some noodles with, with like, a, you know, some, 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 some kind of meat ragu. Mm -hmm. um, there is those on other menus, you know. There's some, some, there's some, some, some I, mean, I, I mean, I think now, like, the, 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 the Vegas area has, like, some really... Really, 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 really awesome restaurants. Um, mm -hmm. You know, doing like some mm -hmm. really good food from Italy. Um, you know, whereas maybe you know, 15 years ago, maybe, maybe not so much. You know, right. um, but yeah, I mean, some of the stuff I think is uh, very uniquely us. You know, um, and then some of the stuff is you know, you might you might find. You know something similar, but like 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 at another restaurant, but maybe not. And then some of it's just really fun, like um, what foie gras pastrami. Foie gras pastrami <laughs> is really fun. That's not very that's not very Italy, but <laughs> but it, it's been on my menu for twenty four years. So you know, yeah, it's kind of we have to have. It. There's like certain things, like you know, 
sweep the the onion you know the 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 onion crepe um you know that's kind of something that is my my actual version of like french onion soup you know which which you know i'm always going to order that whenever i'm at a restaurant who serves that because it's kind of like how do you not eat a bowl of that, right? <laughs> it's like the greatest thing ever, you know? So I, you know, sort of made m- my version of it, right? Um, and it just works and it's always worked. And that's, that's, that's another item that, you know, was on my menu since I opened. And um, it has to be on every menu, you know, it, you know because otherwise, every, cause, because, because everybody sort of knows about it and everyone knows, oh my God, if you're gonna go to Vetri, you got to get the sweet onion cream. They were already thinking about it on the yeah. way in. Yeah, you know? so, so yeah, you know, yeah. You got to play the hit. Another one of my favorite chefs in the world opened a new Italian spot this year, and I sat down with Sean McLean a day or two after dining at his new Sahara spot, Bala Italian Soul, to discuss what he was offering there. Here's a bit of the interview in which the chef takes a bit of issue with the fact that I had gone heavy into the antipasti, pizza, and secundi sections of the menu when I dined there, overlooking the pastas. There's a little bit of everything here. There are uh, about a half a dozen pastas, but you can you can go without having pasta and have a really varied meal. Like my I wife don't and know I if you can go without pasta. You did, but I don't know if uh, I, I don't I'm going to allow that next time. Okay. Well, um, well there's just, I mean, there's you know the complexity of you know any pasta. Some of it is really straightforward. Pastas are really um, uh, really well cared for, um, handmade, just beautifully you know, constructed together. Um, so next time, uh, that is, maybe you're just coming here just for pasta. I'm going to serve you every one of them. I come in for a pasta uh, yeah, tasting yeah, anytime, pasta man, tasting. anytime. Um, and then when we get down to the, you know, the mains, and you mentioned the seam the steak, it's really, you know, going back to sage and everything, you know, quality of ingredients first, simplified cooking, um, and just, just great ingredients. And, and those, the steak and, the, and those are two great examples. They're just really simply prepared, um, but we just try to do the execution at, at the highest level and, and just kind of let the, the meat speak for itself. And, and there's a lot of garlic on there that kind of helps too. So <laughs> The one thing I will say about the pasta selection, because I did look it over very closely, yep. and there, there's a lot on this menu that looked delicious, yep. um, but it did not fall into that predictable yep of the moment let's try to all be the sopranos and do northern new jersey style right, red right, sauce joints yeah. you know you're doing pastas that are i mean the first one that jumped out to me that i didn't have but i always love a good puttanesca sauce and you do squid ink shells puttanesca with mint and squid yeah um you know you've got um capoletti with with the brown butter and pistachios i mean these are not your 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 rigatoni and red sauce kind yeah. of deal. Although there is a bolognese on here. Spaghetti yeah. With bolognese yeah. That's our, well. that's our, our nod. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I think Bala in a nutshell or just kind of more, you know, is, is more about central and Southern and even some Sicilian influence. It's, it's a little brighter. It's a little bit lighter. Um, and, and I think you hit it on the head. It was really not on the red sauce. You know, I mean, that was our, our first tenant when we spoke about, you know, developing the concept with this is not a red sauce Italian restaurant. And so how do we bring the best of what we're doing, best of, you know, uh, you know, regional produce, um, uh, which is, you know, we, we really, you know, foragers and uh, stew and carry and, you know, bringing 
that same great stuff that they've been bringing to us for years. How do we incorporate that and uh, inspire into an Italian lens? And um, it really came out to a much lighter, um, brighter, you know, even some of the, the posse, a little spicy too, um, underlying a lot of that stuff as well. So lively. And um, very reasonably priced, I would say, this restaurant. Your goal is to, I would assume, to not make this a, a, you know, a slap in the face to somebody who's, who's struggling financially. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of times Vegas is all about, though, the excess, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk also in this show about going to salt-based places and some right, excess. Right, right. Um, you know, and coating things in gold. And yeah. you're not about that, yeah, right? Never I, mean, I look at the prices on these pastas, and, you know, you've got them 21, 22, 24, 24, 42 for the linguine with um, with the crab. Um, the squid shells I mentioned at 35 with the squid as well. So, you know, we're not talking about super pricey. This is a place where you can come in, kind of sit down, um, have a light snack, if you want, have one of those fantastic pizzas if you want, or come in for a full meal and you could do it from the, the anapasti to yeah, the freebie the to down, the secundi yeah. and, you know, go all the way through. So yeah. I think there are a lot of ways you can enjoy this restaurant and I really do love the vibe here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We love the way it came out. Nancy Polino was a designer and I mean, it feels refined, but relaxed and bright and airy, uh, but love the finishes and, you know, we're just trying to just polish all the edges right now and um, you know, being we two weeks old, three weeks old, so we're still <laughs> we're still learning every day right now. And finally, no chef gets mentioned more frequently on Food and Loathing than James Trees, primarily because most of the people who contribute to this show tend to dine at his restaurants on a pretty regular basis. So it was great to have him on the show shortly after he returned from a trip to France, where he was researching ideas for L'Aristocrat, a new French restaurant he plans to open in the current Esther's Kitchen location as soon as Esther's relocates to a larger space nearby. Here's what he told us. What we decided to do was, um, I have this theory, and I, I think it was backed up by the trip, and, you know, you, I can create my own echo, echo chamber on this one, but um, I think that what we, as Americans, think of French food is not what people who are in France are eating every day. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot more international. I think it's a lot more modern. Um, and so I went with open stomach and open eyes to Lyon, and then we went to spend a day in Tuagro in, uh, in a place called Ouche, <laughs> and then we went to Paris and kind of attacked Paris. Um, and I have to say that uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, number one, the service across the country was fantastic. They were personable they were caring they were into who we were and obviously the la hat kind of helped me out they're like you are not from here and yeah. and and here's the thing is like i am not going to insult somebody by walking in uh, to the restaurant going oh bonjour and then them saying something in french and me going i'm american i don't speak your language yeah. so i'd walk in i like to pre-identify yeah. as the stupid american yes like, exactly oh, exactly so the hat helps right yeah. yeah so so the la hat uh dodgers hat helps i saw a lot of new york yankees hats over there which i wasn't really into but, <laughs> but uh, you know the dodgers hats i was the only guy so um we got into leon and the first night we had an amazing dinner at uh the best traditional bouchon in the city. Bouchon. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Was it? Did it have a real zinc bar? 
It didn't even have a bar. Uh, this was oh. a 35-seat restaurant that the first seating was 8 o'clock. They do 35 covers, and they don't care. They don't care. If, if you don't have a reservation, just go somewhere else. They're just like, hey, this is we've been open for 100 years. This is what we do. But what about their Yelp reviews? <laughs> I would only, I could only imagine, like, the way, like, this guy was busting, like, balls on on the uh on the guests at the at, at all over the restaurant he was amazing <laughs> and he was personable and he was wearing a camo t-shirt and like i was like this guy is awesome this is not what i think of when i think french yeah. waiter right and the food runner was this lovely uh gal and they kind of walked us through the menu how it works it was you know they basically you order an entree tell them if you want cheese or dessert and then they bring out um like kind of dishes of the day, right? And this is a traditional thing in the Bouchons in, in Lyon, which is the gastronomical capital of France. Uh, basically, you get all these awesome like little things. So that's where we had our first bite of lentils. That's where we had, the, we had these amazing beets with uh, smoked herring. It was a very more interesting, light style of food than you would be expecting. And then, of course, like they had a couple of the classics. So... They did. They had the, you know, the pike brochette, right? Like, which is the pike with the uh, sauce nantois, which is the crayfish sauce. Um, and then, um, and then, like, we had a, a bunch of other like great modernish kind of like light dishes. They had a great pork chop on the menu, and then we did a, a blood sausage wrapped in fouet de brick. But it was like it could have been heavy. But it wasn't. It was light. It was nice. It was crispy. It was great. It was very much different than what you would be expecting when you think French food. Yeah. What did you discover about the way the French eat? Because that is always yeah. interesting. Like, and, and you think about this with any type of ethnic mm -hmm. cuisine. You know, I, I'm going out for French food. I'm going out yep. for Italian food. I'm going, and you have something in your mind as to what it is, right? Right. But when you live in that country, you're just going out for food. I mean, yeah. not to be a corny, you know, no, you're joke, too, right. but it's just food. So how do they eat in France compared to how we eat here. Do they have a higher level of ingredient, a higher level of execution, or yes. is okay. <laughs> <laughs> To be very specific, yeah. um, I mean, you go to those markets and you see the markets on the streets compared to their supermarkets, compared to uh, what we have as our choices. Even like, I mean, if you put the 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 Leal in uh, Lyon, the, the Paul Bocuse, you know, market, uh, up against any market anywhere in America, mm -hmm. it's going to fall short. Like, it's just better. The ingredients are better. The technique is better. They've been, like, you know, they have guys making pate for the last 500 years. Yeah. Like, at one stall in, like, this yeah. market. Are that, ingredients more limited? Uh, no. no. No, not at all. In fact, in fact, I don't, I think it's because... European Union. They can get everything right now. Yeah, I mean, like... From Europe. Yeah, I mean, like, I saw... I saw I saw the most amazing white asparagus. I saw uh, the best strawberries. I mean, like their version of like the fruit section. Like we have all the things that don't rot here, mm. right? They have all the seasonal things like wild strawberries, Frey de Bois, right? There's a things of them, like little containers of them, you know, currants. Like when was the last time you saw currants anywhere here yeah. in America? Last time I saw them was at Santa Monica Farmers Market probably like five years ago. And so, like, these are just the standard things that they have. Like, beautiful rhubarb. There's rhubarb everywhere. There was um, amazing artichokes. And, and 
and the freshness of the radishes like you can see it in comparison to like i mean like maybe like that was comparable when it came to like what Santa Monica has versus like, mm-hmm. which is one of the best farmers markets in the country versus what France has just kind of sitting on the street, mm-hmm. right? Like their level of product is just better. Their fish. Are they more heirloom and heritage breeds and things like that that you're yes. seeing a little less created to, to ship cross country right. and sit on a shelf for a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like, and that's the thing is, and they're just higher quality or the people don't buy them. Like at the end of the market, there was like just a pile of like boxes that before like they throw them away, they just allow people to come up and just grab whatever you want. Like yep. heads of celery that aren't perfect. You know, I saw a lot of melons go in there that people were picking out melons that were maybe just a little too soft for them, right? And the the rule at the farmer's market is very different than what it is here in America where like if I'm walking through a farmer's market in America, I'm picking up things, I'm trying them, I'm tasting them. The rule in France is that you do not touch anything you're not gonna buy. That is very specific. And I think it's probably smart and probably better than what we do yeah, here. probably a better idea. Yeah. Is it also more... To squeeze the melons, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See if yeah. they're ready. Is it also more seasonal? Do people yes. know I'm going to have those strawberries for yep. four to six weeks, and then the rest of the year yep. I'm going to do without? I'm not going to go get the stuff that's grown on some factory in Morocco no, like we do with chili. They're or just not. They're just not going to do that. And, and so then when we get back down to how the French eat in compared to Americans... Obviously, they don't really do French. They don't do fast food at all, and they do smaller portions, and they eat better. They eat richer food, yeah, like cheeses, breads, stuff like that, croissants. I mean, that's kind of built into their thing. They they also drink better than we do. Mm-hmm. There's no fucking light beer in France. <laughs> it's just not. Right? They just don't. They're not gonna. They're not gonna waste their time with it, right? Right. So, um, I I think like we we drank better, we ate better. Than uh, as a normal everyday kind of thing. Underappreciated French beers. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was very I was like I, you know I, I get tired of drinking wine because you have wine with every single meal and like we're going to uh, all these restaurants that are doing wine pairings and here's the other thing is a wine pairing in France they don't do the stupid American thing where they're like slipping a beer or sake or a, or you know like or like a kombucha with a course like no like this is the wines that pair with this food this is why you're here let's let's do this right and and we had just great great human beings take yeah. care of us i love the concept of here's the food eat it or get the fuck out yeah no, like, it was very very true like i mean like they they do not care if you're vegetarian gluten-free anything they just don't care yeah it's <laughs> your problem yeah yeah like you're here to eat our food if you're not here to eat our food you go somewhere else here i i completely agree with that <laughs> yeah. i'm all about that like you, you know how i feel about people who walk into esters and are gluten-free i'm just like you should probably be dead by now then yeah. like if you actually have an <laughs> Breathing the air in here. Exactly. (laughs) Like you're already dead. So so, calm down. So you went there to get ideas. Yeah. So, and of course, for those of us who can't get to France, we will be dining at your restaurant when you open. So, what are you bringing back? What inspired you? I mean, it's really about, um, it's really about smaller, smaller courses, multiple course meals. Um, We want, we're definitely going to do Bouchon days on Sunday. Like, that's one thing we've decided already is like, we're gonna, you're gonna come in. There's gonna be three or four different choices for entrees. You're gonna let us know what you want. Everything else is our choice, and we're just Whoa. gonna do it, right? We're gonna do splits. I really want to focus on. Um, I gotta say, by the way, that makes me so happy because yeah. as somebody who 
knows a lot of chefs. I don't look at menus. Right? No. And I get pissed off when people put a menu in front of me. Right. I'm like, I don't know. You tell me what to eat. It's yeah. your restaurant. What's good? Bring it. Exactly. Let me tell you what I can afford to spend. Yeah. And, you know, uh-huh. like. And that's the thing is, like, I mean, like, those, those bouchons, I mean, they, they were $45 for food. Yeah. It wasn't expensive. And, I mean, I think that's the other thing is, like, you know, one of the reasons why I really want this concept to live in the original Esther space is because this space is the right size for a, for a concept like this. Yeah. And then I think we're going to do, um, I think we're going to do an a la carte and tasting menu kind of side by side with the, the regular uh, service. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be dinner only, which is gonna be something that will give us time to, cause you know how it is at Esther, it's like we're just jamming constantly. We're always trying to get ready. Mm-hmm. Like we had to close from three to five in order to like- Breathe. Just, just to rebuild, you know, in between lunch and dinner. Right. With the new space, we're gonna have a lot more space over there. This is gonna be something more high end and a little bit, um, a little bit more about like where we are as a restaurant group and a bunch of people who are cooking for people. Mm-hmm. And then the idea is that uh, we want to, cause we know how arduous fine dining can be. Like a lot of chefs just burn out on it. Mm-hmm. So to keep it fresh, we're going to start rotating cooks from other restaurants into this space in order to get them the opportunity to like uh, have a break, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's it, like cooking in esters is like a grind every day, right? You're you're banging out pastas, you're you're working in small cramped spaces, and then you know you go to Al Salito and it's a whole different vibe. It's a whole different cuisine. Then you go to Ada's and Jackson's doing a whole different you know vibe over there, and then when you come here, like once you've earned your way up the ladder, this is going to be the place where you're going to want to work, right. and you're going to want to do this for about six months, and then you're going to want to be like. I got to get out of here. <laughs> right. We're going to get a whole new look. This look that we see yeah. in Esther's, A, will anything I see here be in the lar- lar- newer, larger space? Yeah, I, I think we are going to definitely trans, uh, transfer all the the tables, the vibes, the colors, the the graphics, all that. Um, but we are going to do a floor-up remodel from... Uh, well, this floor, these bricks are yep. gone? They're done? That's, uh, everything's going to be gone. Like, we're we're going to... We're going to rip it all out and uh, rebuild it. Um, and, and I think it's going to be good for the restaurant because we're going to be able to take a look at what we want to accomplish. And then we're going to lay the restaurant out in a different way. We're going to go from an eight-seat bar down to like a four-seat bar, right? Nice, small, clamshell bar. Beautiful, like kind of like centerpiece. And then, you know, if you come to the bar and you want to get some pastises, we're going to make sure that we have some cool stuff for you. And I would also point out that Chef Trees continues to expand his plans for the Arts District. If you get a chance, I'd highly recommend reading Jonathan Wright's recent interview with him in the Review Journal where he discusses a second French concept he's planning. Beyond that, I want to thank everyone for listening to Food and Loathing all year long and wish you all happy holidays. We will be back next year. In the meantime, please continue to check out my media appearances, including every other Wednesday. Um, at about 8, 10 in the morning on Wake Up with the CW, every Thursday morning at around 8, 10 a.m. at on AM 670 KMZQ's The Club, and then all week long on all of the Highway Radio Vegas Vibe stations. You'll also want to keep your eyes on offthestrip.com, where you will find the latest writings from Samantha Gemini Stevens. And hey, check out Rich Johnson's other podcast, On the Corner of Main Street, which is pretty fucking cool. With that said, I'm Al Mancini, wishing you a happy new year and reminding you to stay hungry. Stay hungry.